Hey everyone, welcome to the Paw Awareness Podcast, and thanks for joining me. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and also check us out at pawawareness.org and on Instagram at pawawareness underscore official. On Instagram, we are doing submissions for Pet of the Week, where you can submit your foster pet, and we'll pick one winner every month, and we'll give $200 to their choice of charity or foster. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, everyone, today we have Joanne Lustre from Operation Pause for Homes with us today. And uh, really exciting what this organization is doing. I'm gonna go ahead and let Joanne take it away with uh, a little bit about herself, her background, and more about the organization. Hi there, um, my name is Joanne Lustre. I've been with Operation Pause for Homes for almost 10 years now. Uh, the organization celebrated its 10-year anniversary from a corporation in July of, of, uh, of this year. And to this year, we have, we're on track to rescue almost 2,000 animals, um, incorporating cats and dogs. Last year, we did about 1,300. With pandemic world, big silver lining is more dogs are finding homes and more cats are finding homes. So we're working literally day and night as fast as we can to get dogs out of shelters and into homes and people are i guess they're reevaluating their lives right now and doing things that they've always wanted to do and part of it is adding to their family so that's pretty exciting and operation pause for homes is an all breed dog rescue we have a cat component as well we take dogs of all ages from pregnant moms we have puppies born into rescue that we adopt out we bring them in from all ages, all sizes, all breeds, all different medical statuses. Um, they uh, were volunteer run, volunteer powered. Everybody goes into a foster home. They get the appropriate medical attention. And we have a fairly intense but uh, quick adoption process. We're known to be on top of, on top of our game. Uh, we believe we're very responsive. We're have a fabulous back-end system that enables us to to monitor everything but also collect a lot of information and data and match up adopters and dogs and all their medical records quickly so we've been really really happy with our process over the last 10 years and the improvements that we've made and never really thought that we'd be where we are today so it's it's been a very exciting decade actually that's amazing and you, I know you guys are based on the East Coast, but you're just not limited there, right? Like you, you even have international efforts, right? You got- right. Well, we are, our foster homes are in Southern Pennsylvania, Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia down to uh, the Richmond area. We also have some fosters in North Carolina. Uh, we bring our dogs in from rural shelters where they're at risk of euthanasia for space, where they're just isn't the funding to take care of dogs and there isn't really the communities that value animals in the same way and appropriately spay and neuter. So we transport them from Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, are the areas that we're pulling in from now. And prior to COVID, we also brought in dogs from India. So we work closely with a group there. Um, We continue to help them through these times we're not able to bring in dogs from there but we would they would come in with flight sponsors and uh, you know fly into either new york or dc 
and go into foster homes and, and be adopted. That's amazing. I mean, literally saving animals' lives. To kind of backtrack a little bit, how did you found this? Like what, what sparked that? And can you go into that a little bit? Um, there's a couple of founders uh, that started animal advocates, young women in, in the prime of their life with a, a lot of great ideas and just decided to, they had been fostering with different groups and thought that they had a, a way to make this a bit more efficient and, and founded Operation Pause for Homes. And then it just took off step by step. I think one of the aspects that makes us a little different and has made us successful is that we run it like a business. It's a nonprofit, but it's organized like a business. So we ensure that we have really great documentation for our dogs and for our fosters and the shelters that we work with. We're very clear on our policies and procedures and our expectations and our communication. Um, I hear from adopters every day about how clear we are on what we're going to do and how we follow through with things. And I think that's really made volunteers happier to work with us because they know what the expectations are. They know where they can contribute. They can see where they've contributed. And, um, you know, we've built this really, really cool, we call it a village. It's really, it takes a village to, to save just one dog. Um, any one dog that we bring from the south has between 14 and 20 volunteers that touch it along the way from transport to medical to paperwork to shelter management to uh, posting the dog on social media um, all of these things like it really takes a village to get all of this. yeah I mean it's I cannot preach anymore on that with just how important a great team is and it seems like you guys are doing big things. Now, I know you mentioned, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with the sense of COVID, more dogs getting fostered, adopted. And I think that's amazing. How do you see, like when the COVID settles, right? And kind of life enters more normalcy again. How do you see the, the foster and rescue community just situation kind of shape up? Do you think it's going to originate back to the way it was or what like how do you how do you see that um, kind of taking fold or do you think people are still going to maintain you know just increased adoptions it's a really good question and I think it's one that all rescues and everyone in this area is really trying to figure out initially we thought I mean initially we thought we were in a two or three week lockdown <laughs> yeah. and here we are six yeah. months later and People are talking about another 6, 12, 18 months, depending on who you talk to, right? Yep. And so we initially saw four to five times the applications that we would normally get for dogs. And we've been, um, you know, placing as many dogs as we can possibly get. We would, we onboarded uh, one month, almost 50 new foster homes. Many of those fosters adopt their first dog. So they are <laughs> sort of taking themselves out of commission, but that was pretty cool. I think it's, it's a multifaceted thing. I think in many ways, people are through this time taking a step back in life and deciding to not put off what was important to them and to really focus on what is important to them. And I'm hoping as we come out of this, and I think we'll come out of it a little bit slower than we had originally anticipated, people will hang on to those values 
and they will continue to look after their dogs and be, be, become advocates of, um, you know, spay neuters, important rescue, uh, knowledge of shelters, those kinds of things. And I think also society has seen through our culture, you know, we've gone to people working at home, we've gone to people living on Zoom meetings with their cat walking across their keyboard and their two-year-old asleep on their back and the dog whining to go out and it's reality and people are learning that family, including pets, is a part of life and it doesn't need to be excluded from our work day and it doesn't mean that we're less productive. Um, and I think there might be a societal shift towards a better appreciation of the inclusion of pets and the value of pets and children and families and all those things in our daily life. And that's going to lead to better care for, for the pets and more adoption and um, people being able to say, hey, I have a new puppy at home. My schedule's changed. I need to be home every four hours for the next few months. Everybody else covering and say, great, we'll, we'll make this happen for you. I think that's a great point. And I think a lot of people too, it's, you know, especially when it comes to fostering and adopting, at least when I started, it was like, oh, I thought, it, you know, I was making the change for the animal's life and you are. But I think what a lot of people don't understand too is, is that these animals are changing your life for the better as oh well. And so yeah. I think that's, which I did not realize. I mean, I heard people say it, but until you actually experience it, it's a, you just, you just don't know. Uh, you so, don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's just like this indescribable feeling. Fostering, adopting, it's so exciting, but there is definitely a learning curve there. What do you see or what does your organization see um, as like a really common problem or mistake people are making when they are starting? And is there any way to com combat that or type of training you can take? Or is there anything along those lines to make that first foster a little bit easier? So we are really big on information. We probably overshare information and we repeat it. And so it's there. People take in what they can. There's a couple of different areas. I think probably if I was going to pick one thing, it would be what we call the decompression phase. And the first week, 30 days, 90 days of a new dog in your home, it's time for them to really understand what's going on. The sights, the smells, they take in so much more than we know. They need to understand who's possibly going to come in, what the schedule is, when they're going to get fed, where they're going to sleep, what ex surprises could happen, what kind of energy to expect. And we really stress strongly with our fosters and adopters to allow a dog to decompress. We, we focus on time in the crate, treats in their crate, food in their crate, like time in their space that's all theirs, that nobody's going to sneak up and surprise them on anything where they can really sit back and relax and take everything in. And if people give dogs that time to blossom, um, they're going to see so many changes uh, in that dog's personality over that time. And that is really, really critically important is to keep their world very, very small. Um, we get so many dogs that have never walked through a doorway before. So walking through a doorway can scare, they look like they're a cat being bathed. They're that scared. They um, have never been up and down stairs before. They 
have different surfaces. They haven't been on a tile floor before. Maybe um, they haven't been maybe on grass before. They've only been dirt on gravel. So a lot of these new things, they haven't seen motorcycles or bicycles or skateboards or maybe really ch or children or cats or very tall people with hats or, you know, so you look at your dog from their perspective and they're looking around at a potentially a whole new world and that's different colors, different textures, different sounds, sights, smells, everything. So we need to take a step back and reintroduce them to things really slowly. And my analogy for that is if you adopted a three-year-old from a foreign country, you would be so excited to have this new member of your family. And it's very similar to that for many people. They, it, it's like they've given birth or they've adopted from a birth mother and they're so thrilled to have this new new pet in their family and you want to take them everywhere and you want to show them everything and you want to do everything you've ever dreamed of with this dog and you want everyone to see how wonderful they are. But if that was a child, you wouldn't take them to Disneyland the first day. You would keep them at home. You would figure out what their favorite foods are and how to comfort them and make sure they got enough sleep and they got enough rest and they got enough nutrition and take it step by step. And you really need to do that with dogs as well. That's such a great point. And I wish someone would have told me that when I first started. I, <laughs> me too. I re yeah, yeah, don't we all, don't we all. Like, I, like, I, remember, I remember there was one time where I had this dog and I, for, it, was, it was cold out. So I had my hoodie on and I had my hood over my head because I have no hair. So it's, I'm just freezing. <laughs> and for the life of me, I could not figure out, like I finally pieced it together, but this dog did not like what, when I had a hoodie Your on. Your hood. Yeah. And it was the hood. And yeah. I just didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that like little weird, weird to us. Yeah. Small things. But can... it's funny you do it with babies. So if a baby was up exactly. to you and, and you had glasses on, they're like, Oh, the baby's afraid of your glasses or, Oh, the baby's afraid of your beard or, yep. you know, those kinds of things. Dogs is the, it's exactly the same way. It's like, they haven't seen these things. They need to be exposed to them. And if you think of, um, I had one vet tell me it was a rule of sevens. Her thing was seven surfaces, seven smells, seven types of doorways. Like just if you start to broaden your thought pattern, then you realize all these things can be really new for them. And they don't know. They're, I, I can't imagine, you know, it, and it's like people that take dogs to the dog park the first day. It's like, would you take your brand new three-year-old from a foreign country and just send them into a gym full of eh, children. They're all ages from all places. We have nothing. We have no idea who those children are, but you just put your kid in the middle of that and you just kind of stand back and watch and hope. I don't know that they're going to have, they're going to have so much fun. Um, no, you're probably traumatizing them for life. And sometimes we do that to dogs too. We can really, make some mistakes early on with introductions that m make them wonder if they're forever going to be on their own. So that time building the bond with you is really, really important to the rest of their, their life with you. Yeah. I mean, building that bond is critical and it really makes the relationship, you know, they have to trust you, especially mm -hmm. if you're going out to foster some of these dogs that are maybe a little older or mm -hmm. they've encountered some abuse in their past they're definitely going to take way more of that relationship building for sure. Um, so no, that's a great, that's a great insight. Um, my, 
And I guess something else I wanted to ask you was, is as of right now, I mean, I feel like, you know, more people are adopting and fostering, but despite, despite that, what do you still see as the number one issue in the foster and rescue community right now? Like if you just had to hone in on one particular issue, what, what do you see that as right now? The, the lack of spay neuter in, in rural communities, you know, in, in the cities where there's a good knowledge that this is important. Um, it's a community norm. It happens, but you drive an hour and a half, two hours out of Washington, DC, and you have stray dogs walking around because people don't spay neuter and they don't value them the same way. Um, we have a community spay neuter program that we have in place. I think, I don't know the exact numbers right now. We've, I think we've done just a little over, I want to say about 325 animals this year, free spay neuters, which isn't a lot, but it's probably several thousand dogs and cats that will not be born in rural communities that we would be, you know, picking up in the next six to 12 months to adopt out. And so the education or we do, we have education programs for children and communities. And prior to COVID, we did a lot of activities in libraries and schools teaching children about the importance of rescue and spay-neuter. And um, we have a specific program within our rescue where we have vans that go out into rural communities and people sign up and we do free spay-neuters for cats and dogs, as many as we possibly can. And we also, it's a big part of our education with our adopters. It's brought up in every conversation it's brought up in their final contract we have a specific fund that people can we call it rounding up but they can uh, donate an extra few dollars with their adoption fee that goes specifically to spay neuter of a community animal and that's all tracked so they can see you know 25 dollars gets a dog spayed in rural tennessee that's a really valuable 25 dollars so people get pretty excited about that but i think that's we're still, we're still not there. We need to really figure out how that just becomes a norm in our world. Yeah. And I mean, it's like you said with the, it's, it's, it's more like geographical based where certain areas are more educated in it and, and others aren't. And uh, what do you think it's a big topic to tackle? Like how do you integrate that into some of these communities where it isn't the norm uh i i don't know i mean that's i guess just I constant think, education. yeah you, it's constant i think it, you break the problem down and it's like with spay neuter so 10 sorry with rescue 10 years ago uh when we began we worked with a small shelter in north carolina their euthanasia rate was over 95 percent because nobody adopted from the community and they just took them to the pound and it, there was no adoptions. They didn't have an adoption floor. They didn't have an adoption coordinator. We managed to work with them and start to take dogs out of there, transport them out, get them adopted. And it started this little cycle of then the volunteers in the community felt that they had a little bit of support so they could do a little more because they could save a few dogs. And then, more people got on board and more people got on board. And honestly, in we can't take a dog from them now because they their community got on board, they got some spay and neuter, they got some funding, they built an actual shelter, 
They've rebuilt it to another shelter now with a big adoption floor. They're quite the fancy shelter. Um, they have spay neuter in their community. They're so proud of what they've done. It's really, really amazing. And that was about eight years from 90% to basically becoming almost a no-kill shelter. And that's, it's just those little tiny things. So anything that one person can do, it can make a massive impact. This is one of the few things I feel in this world that one person can, you know, donate a bag of dog food every day, go on Amazon and once a month send $25 worth of dog food to the shelter in rare Tennessee, where you have three volunteers that are over the age of 65 that are the only people that take dogs out of that community, period. They have no money, they have no funds, they have nothing, they're only supported. But if each person sent them collars, food, food, vaccinations, uh, $25 to transport a dog, $25 to spay or neuter a dog, in a short period of time, we could start to turn the community around and they start to see that there's a benefit and then the politicians in the community come around and there's support and there's a groundswell to make this better there. So it's absolutely possible. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like, And that's one thing I've said on every episode is, is and I truly believe it, one person can make a big difference and okay. it all starts and it's just this snowball effect. And like you mm-hmm. just mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, so my, ne- my last question for you is, is, so if someone's really eager to wanting to start fostering and adopting, um, if they're in your area, how, how do they, how would they go about, you know, do they reach out to you guys? Like, how would that work? What's the process? Yeah. For if they're, if they're anywhere in the Metro DC area, um, you go to our website, ophrescue.org, um, fill out an application. There's opportunities to foster. There's, if you can't foster, um, there's opportunities to do everything, help with social media, data entry, adoption coordination, where you talk to people, transporting dogs and cats to the vet for appointments. Uh, you can get involved in almost any possible way. Or if you want to, even if you don't want to do that, but you want to figure out how you can help in a more rural community, you can participate in our spay and neuter programs where we send out Spaniard advance to rural communities or right now we're connecting individual volunteers to some of the shelters in Mississippi and Alabama so they can directly work with those people and find out how so you can be like a, a televolunteer almost to a shelter in Mississippi and connect with them and, and figure out what they need next and if it's from coordinating you know building shelter for dogs dog houses, getting food, running drives, doing whatever you can. So whatever you feel your passion is, there's something along that spectrum that we connect you with. That's amazing. And every link for, for them, whatever medium you're listening on will be in the description below of that, of that medium. I'm so grateful I got to talk with you today. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. I'm sure our viewers did too. Thank you so much for stopping by. Definitely we'll be talking soon.